There is no getting away from the fact that it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. Um, now, get rid of that earworm out of your head. Um, the first weekend in December, Christmas season is in full swing. Yesterday afternoon, I had the pleasure of hosting um, our second annual gingerbread housemaking afternoon. It was a great time of fellowship. There was lots of sticky icing and lollies and chatter and noise in uh, um, the cafe area. Most houses made at home in one piece, I think. I, I can't, I can't um, vouch for whether they still are. But um, it was really a wonderful time um, together of fellowship as we see out the year. On Friday night, the youth group had their final social evening for the year, which um, I have to say, when I came to pick up Lissy, sounded like they were having an incredible amount of fun. And I know that we have our Thanksgiving service next week, but I want to particularly give a shout out to Adam and the youth leaders um, in our midst. Would you, would you do that this morning? Yeah. As a parent of children who've attended Vision Youth for over a decade, um, I cannot tell you how much I value having a youth group that not only provides a safe and fun space for my teenagers, but also is invested in their formation, their spiritual formation of them coming to know Jesus. And even this year, we've had young people who've made commitments to the Lord and um, you know, the investment that these guys make into our next generation is really significant. So um, I just really wanted to honour you and your team for um, your faithfulness this year. But I do digress. It is a busy time of the year, I guess is my point. Um, I grew up in the Northern Hemisphere, um, or my childhood was in the Northern Hemisphere, and I, I, my observation would be that kind of having Christmas and the end of the school year all in one go makes life very chaotic, particularly for families. There will have been, if you've got kids at school or you're a teacher, you will have had the beginnings of concerts and awards and functions that are just beginning to layer your week. And if you're like me, your Christmas tree, if you have one, is likely to be up by now. I am usually a strictly 1st of December Christmas tree decorator, but this year... We put it up on the 28th of November. In my mind, that was justified by the fact that the first Sunday in Advent was last Sunday, so we put it up on the Monday. Um, but it is Christmas, and I love Christmas. I am probably would go as far as to say that I am a Christmas tragic. I own six nativity sets. Now that is only potentially rivaled by Robin Baker. No, she's shaking her head. I'm still, you've got one more? Yeah, one more. Seven nativity sets that she has this year. I might add another one. <laughs> I'll see you one and raise you one. Over the years, um, as a family, the Hartley family, we have established many Christmas traditions. Um, we have always given our kids a new Christmas tree decoration every year so that when they leave home, they have a good stash of their own to take with them. 
My Christmas cake, which is my mum's recipe, um, is always baked in October, so it has a month to sit. And then it's cracked open as soon as the Christmas tree goes up so that we can eat it through Advent, because I figure if we wait till Christmas, we'll be full of too much other food. We light an Advent candle every evening to count down to Christmas together as a family as we eat around the table. We always watch all our favourite Christmas movies. We have the Christmas playlist going. When the girls were little, that was Colin Buchanan. We've um, upgraded from there to um, uh, for King and Country and a few other things um, these days. When the girls were little, and not so little, because this was a tradition that was fairly hard to let go of, Justin would every evening during December read from a book that we had called The Jesse Tree, which um, basically... Sh- walk them through the story each year from creation to the nativity, showing the unfolding of God's plan and his promise to send his son. I always follow an Advent devotional, and women, you would know that I send out at the beginning um, of the Advent season always just uh, some ways that we can prepare him room, make him room at this time of the year with all the busyness. So I think you get the picture. I could go on and on about the various traditions we have. The bottom line is that I love Christmas and all things Christmas. And things have definitely changed over the years. Um, We have two of our girls who don't live at home now. Um, We've acquired a son-in-law who has developed his own set of Christmas traditions in our house. I'm not quite sure how this came about, but we're into our third year. And what it looks like is that he hides Jack's biscuits in all my nativity sets (laughs) for me to find. He says that this is my Advent activity. And this year, I didn't even know this game had started, but he'd let himself into the house while we were all at work, hidden the Jats biscuits, but he was exposed because the cat found one and she was eating it. There is something lovely, beautiful and familiar for me around Christmas. I got out all my decorations on Monday and it was a little bit like rediscovering old friends. Um, There's something very comforting about it when lots in life changes around us to sometimes have some things that just stay the same. So traditions and customs and rituals, nostalgia, our familiarity, they can be a good thing. But I guess what I want to say this morning amongst all the frivolity of sharing with you my own Christmas traditions is that there is still a danger for us in that familiarity in this season. And that is when we become over-familiar with the Christmas story. What I want to challenge us this morning is that we do need to guard against the familiarity that leads us to treat the Christmas narrative as ordinary, to allow our nostalgia to shrink it down into something a bit more like urban legend rather than biblical narrative, a familiarity that leads us to feel like we already know it all. I have to admit that even coming to preaching a sermon with an Advent or Christmas theme is challenging. 
because sometimes we can feel, well, we have heard it all. All the sermons have been preached about this. I think the other thing that I just want to acknowledge this morning is that Christmas is not all simply marvellous. There is an undeniable truth that in the fragility of our humanity, Christmas is layered with all sorts of emotions for us and different experiences. Christmases can be filled with longing and exhaustion as well as love and hope, with loneliness and despair as well as with joy. And it's this very humanity which is the reason why Jesus came for us. And that we remember that the waiting for his coming was also filled with that same longing and exhaustion and love and loneliness, hope and despair. And so today... It is my mission just to slow us down a bit. I love that Adam started our service this morning talking about making room. So much can crowd out that making room in our lives. So I want to take the time this morning for us to just slow down a bit. And whether you are someone who has celebrated the Christmas season as a follower of Christ for a lifetime and over decades, or whether this is in fact your first Christmas as a follower of Jesus. I want us to pause and to ponder and to consider and to contemplate with fresh eyes Christ's first coming so that we may clearly recognise his coming now in the midst of our messy lives. And what my prayer is, is that in doing that, we would be caught up in the fresh wonder and worship of the one who became flesh and dwelt amongst us. So can I pray for us? Father, it is our heart this morning to prepare room to slow down, to learn to wait, to pause and to ponder and allow you, Holy Spirit, to do your work in our midst this morning. We trust that even in the familiarity of this story, you are at work in fresh and new ways in our life. We welcome you, King Jesus. And we welcome you to reveal more of yourself to us. Amen. So if you have your Bibles, um, the two places that we're going to get to today, just so that you can um, have it ready, are Isaiah 9. And Luke chapter 1. And this is obviously a Christmas message, but I want to start this morning.
by going a long way back before Christmas, before the Christmas nativity, to remind ourselves once again of the circumstances into which Jesus came. It's hard to capture the desperation and the longing if we just park ourselves in the stable with the heavenly hosts and wide-eyed shepherds. You see, the Old Testament is filled with stories of God's people anticipating a future that was better than their present. Their generational story speaks to us of this tension of holding on to hope while longing and waiting for the kingdom of God to break in, for God to come and rescue his people. These were people who told and retold the Exodus story every year of how God had rescued and liberated his people out of slavery from Egypt and led them into the promised land. And even as they continued what seemed to be this relentless cycle of God rescuing them and then them in their certain disobedience wandering away from him, followed by the misery and oppression of foreign nations ruling them and then back to God rescuing and redeeming them again. Even in the midst of this cycle, it seems to have played out multiple times through their generations in history. They continued to believe that if God had done it before, he could do it again. There was this longing and waiting and waiting and longing because theirs was a hope based on the character and faithfulness of their God, just like ours is. And deeply rooted in scripture in their belief was this idea that Yahweh would one day come and permanently establish his rule and reign on the earth as king through the anointed one, through the Messiah. But what did they think that meant? What would that look like? Would Yahweh appear and visibly take charge and rescue them and restore them and crush and condemn their oppressors and bring them national liberation? There were many who thought that's what it would look like. How did they imagine that God's glory and power would be manifested? And how would this Messiah, this anointed one, how would his arrival be announced? In a time when Israel was yet again looking everywhere but to their God, overrun by their oppressors, and in the midst of what Isaiah describes as the gloom of anguish and thick darkness, a prophetic birth announcement comes. And we'll pick that up in Isaiah 9. Verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. 
for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth, and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. A seed of hope. He was coming, all injustice and oppression overthrown, the kingdom of God established forever, liberation just around the corner. What a blessed relief. 700 years after this birth announcement, Israel remained overrun by their oppressors. This time it was the Roman Empire. Augustus Caesar was the Roman emperor at the time, self-proclaimed as a son of God. The reason that he could do this was because he claimed that his late stepfather, Julius Caesar, had become divine, so that therefore made him the son of a god. And carved on the monuments at the time was this inscription about Augustus Caesar. Good news! We have an emperor. Justice, peace, security and prosperity are ours forever. The son of God has become king of the world. I want you to think back for a moment on the words that Isaiah proclaimed. How similar they sound about the coming of the king that Israel were yearning for. How abhorrent it must have been for them to hear this Roman pronouncement about a pagan, gentile and oppressive ruler. How far off must their redemption have seemed? At this time in the system of government that Rome established for, these, for their outlying colonies, Herod the Great was appointed to oversee and enforce Roman rule over Judea. The title given to him was King of the Jews. The use of this kingly title applied to Herod who was by all accounts, a tyrant and bloodthirsty ruler must have been gut-wrenching for God's people and just hope-crushing. You add to this 400 years of silence, 400 years of no prophetic voice, 400 years of hearing nothing, 400 years of clinging to ancient promises. How long, God? Where are you, God? Are you coming, God? And in the midst of the gloom of anguish and thick darkness, longing and waiting and clinging to hope of the kingdom of God breaking through for the promised one to come, a young Jewish, unwed teenage woman received the announcement 
of a coming king. Would you look with me at Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favoured one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom, there will be no end. Did that long ago ancient promise come to Mary's mind? For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. Was this how the people of Israel had imagined that their longed-for king of glory would come and establish his throne? It's unlikely that any of them thought it would involve a peasant girl in a backwater like Nazareth with no obvious nobility. Surely they imagined something a bit more in the vein of Psalm 24. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in, a lord strong and mighty and ready for battle. But instead of gates being flung wide, the king of glory snuck in the back door. Aunt Anne Voskamp puts it this way, he who carved the edges of the cosmos curved himself into a fetal ball in the dark, tethered himself to a uterine wall of a virgin and let his cells divide. Just let that sink in for a minute. All that waiting over centuries and centuries, longing for the kingdom of God to break in. And he arrived in obscurity, unseen, and his glory seemingly hidden. And yet even then, his presence was recognisable. Would you take a look with me at verse 39 of chapter 1 of Luke. Mary has been told by the angel that she's to go and spend time with her cousin Elizabeth, who is also with child and a child that had seemed impossible for her to conceive. The child in her womb is John the Baptist and she's about six months along in her pregnancy at this point. 
And so Mary does as she's told, and she heads to visit her cousin Elizabeth. Now she is not any further along than in her first trimester, probably very, very early in the conception of Jesus in her womb. And we read this, in those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to the town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. We don't really know, but we assume that Elizabeth didn't know that Mary was with child. They certainly had no fast communication system and it was not something that as an unmarried woman you were likely to send in a message, guess what, I'm pregnant and I'm coming to you. And yet, as soon as Mary entered the house, the presence of the king was evident, no bigger than a jelly bean. The fulfillment of everything promised in that prophetic word through Isaiah and all the other ones that came afterwards was contained in Jesus, even while embryonic and in the obscurity of Mary's womb. Elizabeth immediately recognized, and John, as a six-month-old in her womb, that the king was in the room. Jesus was no less glorious, no less God, no less powerful, no less the long yearned for awaited promised Messiah as a tiny embryo growing in the dark or as a helpless baby born in an animal shelter laid in a cradle in the dirt with a teenage mother celebrated by no-name shepherds, no less than when he conquered sin and death, or indeed when he returns again in his glory. The one who is all-powerful, the king of glory, stooped low to come for us, to become one of us. Again, I just ask you to pause and take that in for a minute. It's hard for us to get our human brains around it. I might ask the music team if you wouldn't mind coming up. What I want us to remember this morning is it might be a familiar story, but there is absolutely nothing ordinary and everyday about the arrival of King Jesus. Customs and traditions and nostalgia and familiarity, they are all fine as long as they don't cause us to miss the wonder and to stand in amazement that God became flesh and dwelt amongst us. 
there is nothing about Jesus's arrival that people expected. This is not what they expected in their longing and their desperation and their yearning. Jesus constantly upended people's preconceived ideas in his birth, in his life, in his death and resurrection. He's still doing it today. And there was absolutely nothing, not rulers, not tyrant kings, not powers and principalities or anything in all the earth that was ever going to thwart God's timing. There must have been times when the people of Israel were thinking, where are you, God? Hundreds of years passing. But he was always coming in his timing, in his plan and in his purposes. Paul puts it this way to the, his letter to the Galatians in chapter 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. When the fullness of time had come, not a moment too soon, not a moment too late, through the darkness and the anguish, through the longing and the waiting, he was always coming to rescue and redeem and he always will. And so during this Advent season, whew, sorry, during this Advent season, we do celebrate Jesus' first coming in the incarnation. And we anticipate with longing and waiting his second coming in glory. And we also look for the ways that he comes to us right now, bringing light in our darkness, peace in our turmoil, and hope in our despair. And there is an invitation to us this Advent season with all its nostalgia and traditions and feastings, with all the complexity and layered feelings to pause to choose not to rush past a familiar story of shepherds and angels and babe, a baby in a manger, to, assume, to not assume that we've heard it all before, to ponder and to contemplate. Do we believe that Jesus can and will come in the midst of our longing, our exhaustion, our loneliness, in the midst of our despair and grief and bring his love and his hope and his joy as we all too wait for the kingdom of God to break through in our lives and in the lives of the ones we love. I want us to pause this Advent season and ask ourselves, do our preconceived ideas and expectations of what that should look like put us at risk of missing his glory and his presence being revealed in hidden and unexpected places. No one expected to find the king of glory in a stable, lying in a manger. But his presence is always evident, always there, always reaching for us. And so it's my prayer that we would be so filled with the Holy Spirit 
because that's how Elizabeth recognized his presence. It says that the Holy Spirit came upon her, that we would be so filled with the Holy Spirit that we will recognize when the King is in the room this Christmas, even when he comes to us in ways that we don't expect. So would you stand this morning? And we're going to just prepare him some room again as we finish our service together. You are welcome in this place. King Jesus, would you come, Holy Spirit, and fill us afresh this morning? Bring your clarity this morning. Open our eyes this morning to the presence of the King in our midst. The coming of Lord Jesus, King Jesus, King of glory. Be that in hidden and obscure places or whether that be through flinging wide gates. However you want to do that, Lord, is okay with us. We honour you this morning, King Jesus. We look for the ways that you are coming in our life and in the lives of those around us. thank you that you were all powerful, that all glory belongs to you, and that it was no less true when you were a tiny embryo, when you shrunk yourself small to be placed in the womb of a woman to come for us. Stand in awe and wonder of you this morning, Jesus.